during that five minutes, and it is just crazy how many of y'all get out there and get another cup of coffee or donut. That's awesome. That's exactly what we were uh, hoping for, connection. So I wonder if you have ever thought about the fact that a single phone call has the power to change your life. When you think of it, most phone calls really don't amount to a whole lot. One person picks up the phone and dials another. Uh, They wait for the number to be dialed and for someone to pick it up and then uh, have a little bit of a conversation. Uh, Sometimes ideas are exchanged, statements are made, questions are asked and answered. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't amount to whole much. It's straightforward. However, some phone calls have the power to change the direction of your life. Some calls that change our lives are really, really welcomed. We're glad to receive those. Uh, There are phone calls, however, that we get that are very, very unwelcomed. And on Monday, December the 19th in 1977, it's a long time ago, my family received a phone call that was very much unwelcomed, and I'll never forget. Many of you have received a phone call like we received. I grew up in a middle-class family in central Illinois. My parents are both retired school teachers, and uh, they have four children. And in 1977, I was nine years old and in the third grade. And back then, some of you younger folks might not have any understanding of this whatsoever, but back then, phones were actually attached to the wall. They were attached to the wall, believe it or not. I think I might have a picture here in a minute. Our family had two phones in our house. One was in the upstairs in the kitchen, and the other one was in the basement, and both of them were attached to the wall. The phone in the kitchen, I remember, was white, and it had a 10-foot cord. One of those cords that always seemed to be tangled, and you would be kind of in the midst of it when you answered a phone call. My dad was not yet home when the phone call that changed our family's life came in. When I picked up the white phone in the, in the kitchen, my uncle from southern Illinois was on the other line. And uh, there was no, none of the usual small talk. He didn't ask me how school was going or how my favorite sports team was doing. Uh, no pleasant conversations. He immediately asked if my dad was home. And I've already shared that my dad was not home, but I told him my mom is home. And he asked simply to talk with her. And I remember instinctively sensing that something was wrong. Uh, While I handed the phone off to my mom, and I, I honestly, I don't remember which of my three siblings it was, but there were a number of us in the kitchen. I remember one of them looking at me and asking me what was wrong. And it was as if there was a thought that just pushed its way into my head, and I simply said, Grandpa Huffmeyer died. And uh, shortly after my mom got off the phone, she confirmed my fears. Death, for the very first time in my young life, had intruded into our family. When my dad got home shortly after my uncle's call, I remember seeing him visibly cry for the very first time in my life. 
I was told that my grandpa was out shoveling some dirt at the farm, which he typically did, uh, and that he had a massive heart attack, that he, he died quickly. He probably died before he hit the ground, they said, as if that was supposed to comfort a nine-year-old boy when grandpa wouldn't be at Christmas in two weeks or at any of his uh, baseball games that summer. The next several days in my young life were literally a blur. Over the years, since 1977, I have attended uh, a large number of funerals, both family and friends. Uh, As a pastor uh, of 26, 27 years, I have actually participated in over 80 different funerals. And, And on a handful of occasions, as a pastor, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to be with a family as one of their family members takes their last breath. Benjamin Franklin is credited with saying, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And you know what? He was right. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, and he might, every one of us will eventually die. The chances are 100%. And like all important events that we face this morning... We, uh, we can begin to have mixed emotions and feelings about them. Many of us can begin to think about, as our culture does, is that, that death is a normal thing. And while death is certain, it was never, ever intended to be a part of God's original design for humanity. In fact, death was not a part at all of God's original design. Death is considered by the, the Bible... It's talked about as being an enemy and being an intruder. And and it steals what's very most important in our lives, and that's our relationships. Death is a direct consequence of sin entering this world. Humans were created by God not to die. And like other important issues, the Bible speaks very clearly about death and how we can respond when it impacts our lives. We have all, all have the ability to be impacted in one way or another. And many of you know the, the pain and the grief associated with death. Uh, some of you are in a very fresh season of grief now. Others of you are, are still grieving the loss of someone many, many years ago. Uh, Some of you are grieving in ways that others of us have not yet experienced. But this morning in the second week of our teaching series, The Good News About Death, we are going to look at a passage of scripture that really, really does bring good news to anyone who's currently grieving and to anyone who will eventually be in a state of grieving. That means that it's good news for each and every one of us. And My desire this morning is that each and every one of us would leave profoundly encouraged. So grab your Bible if you've got one or a device. Turn or swipe to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. And again, this is an incredibly well-known passage. I would uh, guess that most of you are familiar with it. Um, Those of you who are are not, I hope you will begin to get familiar with it because it is incredibly, incredibly uh, encouraging. This section that we're going to look at together was uh, part of a letter that was written to a church that the Apostle Paul was serving 
in the ancient city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC, and it actually still exists today. It's the second largest city in Greece. And Paul wrote this specific church to answer an incredibly important question that they had about the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. You see, many followers then believed that Jesus Christ would return during their lifetime. And they look forward to this event with great, great anticipation. But they wondered about their spiritual brothers or sisters, whether those were friends or whether they were family members. They wondered about those who had already died. And their question was this, would they miss out on the most spectacular event in all of history? You know, when Jesus came to earth the first time, we're going to celebrate it here at Christmas, he came to earth in in relative obscurity. He was born in a smelly stable in a small kind of uh, podunk town. He came as a suffering servant to, to live a sinless life so that he could die on the cross and be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. His birth was not announced to royalty, but to lowly shepherds. And if you remember the story, and maybe you've already set a few decorations out, there were some some angels at that announcement. And here's how I'm guessing that actually played out. Uh, When when the angels heard of God's plan for Jesus to come to earth uh, without a bunch of fanfare, I'm guessing that they gathered around the throne in heaven, And there were enough of them there that they began to persuade God to allow them to at least go and be a part of the announcement of Jesus coming. And and I would imagine after some, some cajoling and some pestering and all those sorts of things, God finally said to them, all right, you guys can go. But you can only sing one song, and I want you to sing that that short glory to God in the highest song. I don't want you to go during the day, just go at night. I don't want you to sing at the palace, just go to the shepherds and sing. But here's what I promise. I promise when Jesus comes back to earth, we are going to blow out all the stops It's going to be a real showstopper. He will make a grand entrance like no one has ever seen before. You can count on it. Now, I'm not really sure if that's how it went. God's pretty well purposeful and sovereign, so that's my own uh, own thoughts. But what I do know is that the people in the church in Thessalonica, they knew that the second coming of Christ was going to be special And they were deeply concerned about people that they knew and loved that had already died. They were concerned that they were going to miss out. Listen to the good news that the Apostle Paul has for them. Read this if you can or think about this as I read it in your mind as if you've only heard it for the very first time. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
according to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Listen to verse 18 again. Therefore, because of these truths, encourage one another with these words. Church, this is such an incredibly encouraging passage of Scripture. My hope is that we will all leave here this morning encouraged, not to necessarily end whatever grieving we may be doing, but to transform our grieving so that we grieve with hope. Let's take a closer look at Paul's words that should encourage, we should encourage one another with, especially when it comes to times of grieving. I mean, what could possibly move a person in despair over the death of a loved one into a state of hope? We're encouraged. Where can encouragement be found? Let's look at, at verse 13 together. Verse 13 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. There are a few things that I want to point out here in verse 13. First of all, it's important to note that Paul is writing to brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul is addressing people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. His encouraging words that we just read are for authentic followers of Jesus Christ. Authentic followers of Jesus, as we point out very often here at Crossroads, are not perfect followers of Jesus. They're just simply people who have placed their faith in the gospel that Jesus died in their place on a cross and rose again. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Notice also that Paul says, when it comes to the death of a loved one, I don't want you, he says, to be uninformed. At times when we're getting bad news, we kind of like to be uninformed. But when we're getting good news, we all want to be informed about that, Paul. Paul does not want anyone at all in the church to be in the dark, so to speak, about the amazing truth that he's here to tell them. He wants all believers in Jesus Christ to know it, to grab a hold of it, and to be encouraged by it. It's also interesting in verse 13 that Paul uses a metaphor for death. And that metaphor is sleep. He does so in verses 14 and 15 as well. Often when a a believer dies, the Bible uses the term or a term like sleep. In John chapter 11, you might want to read this later this afternoon. You can read about a story of a friend of Jesus by the name of Lazarus who died. 
Jesus actually told his disciples he was in another, another town. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The disciples were a little confused. They probably figured if Lazarus was sick, maybe a little sleep would do him some good. Jesus had to tell them plainly, Lazarus is dead. By the time Jesus arrived, he had been in the grave for four days. And you can check it out for yourself. But Jesus simply approaches the grave and tells Lazarus to get up. Get this, church. For Jesus Christ, raising someone from the dead is like waking them up from sleep. Now, I know some of you in here like your sleep. Some of you in here would rather not be awakened when you're in slumber. And I'm not just looking at the lovely lady in the front row. (laughs) But I'm telling you, when you die you will be incredibly grateful that Jesus has the power to wake you up. Finally, in verse 13, Paul simply uses the term of grief and grieving. Grief, and hear me now, grief is a normal, natural, and healthy process of allowing yourself to feel the pain of the loss that you are experiencing. We often think of of grief when we lose a person to death, but we can grieve many, many different things. We can grieve the loss of a friendship. We can grieve the loss of a job. You can grieve the, the loss of your health or the loss of a dream, or as you get older, the loss of your independence. Notice, though, that in verse 13, Paul doesn't say that Christians should not grieve. He simply stresses that our grief should have a foundation of hope. Acknowledging and feeling the pain of a loss is a healthy and an appropriate thing to do. Again, Paul's focus, reminding that followers of Jesus do not grieve without hope. Church, have you ever thought about the fact that the rest of the world, when they go through grief and loss, are left to grieve without hope. For many in our world, death is literally the end of life. Uh, When a person dies, it's, it's for them like before they were never born. It's just black. It's just dark. It's a a thought that you just kind of lose consciousness. And uh, they talk about it as if it's a very natural and and a welcomed thing. There are children's books, and if you don't believe me, go to Amazon and you can find them. There are children's books that are are written to reassure children that when you die, they just put you in the ground and you help a tree grow. You must have missed that. You help a tree grow. Now there's this relief. Of course that doesn't bring any comfort. Uh, It doesn't give any hope. Um, That is how the world explains and deals with death. And that may be why we live in an eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die kind of a culture. It's incredibly, incredibly sad. Paul says grieve, but grieve with hope. Let's move on to verse 14. It provides the answer to an incredibly vital question. Why can we grieve with hope? And Paul tells us, 
14 says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul is simply pointing people to the gospel. The entire message of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, answers the question, how can we be certain and know that we are ready to die? How can I know that I'm right with my creator? Every other world religion talks about the kinds of things that you and I need to do in order to make ourselves right with God, in order to earn a spot in heaven. The Bible tells us about what Jesus Christ has already done for us, dying on the cross, living a a perfect life, rising again, so that we would be ready for heaven. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on a cross and paid the penalty for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again to new life, victorious. The Bible says that a simple, childlike faith is all that's required to save us from our sin. That involves coming to Jesus with an awareness, like a child, that we on our own are helpless and dependent upon him. We have absolutely no power to fix our spiritual problem or to pay our sin debt on our own. Like a child who allows a loving adult in their lives to provide for them, we turn to Jesus and say things like, help me, I need you. I have nothing on my own to offer you. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I am yours and you are mine. The gospel brings all kinds of hopes Because Jesus conquered death. He defeated it. So much so that, again, death for the believer is described here and in many, many other places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as sleep. Our scripture text for today brings hope in the midst of grief, but it's also one of the main texts that's used to give us just a small glimpse as to what the second coming of Christ might look like. I just need you to know that today, we're not going to get into a whole lot of that because that's, that really requires a whole sermon series on its, on its own. And, and it deserves that. But Paul focuses and his main focus in this text is to answer the question, what about believers who have already died? Will they miss the second coming of Jesus? Will they only hear about it later at some other point? Maybe they're in heaven and will they have to read about it in the heavenly newspaper or in a heavenly uh, newscast at some point in time? Look at verse 14 and, and Paul really lays it right out here. He says, according to the Lord's own words, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul wants to be clear that what he's saying comes from the highest level of authority. It's the Lord's own words. It's what he says about himself. And he says that followers of Jesus who have already died and gone to heaven will not miss out. 
the second coming of Jesus will by far be the most spectacular event in all of history, and your believing loved ones are going to be there. Jesus came for the first time as a humble baby, obscurely. Not a lot of people knew it. Most people missed it. But when he comes back, church, he will return, the Bible says, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. According to the Lord's own word, my grandpa Hoffmeyer, who I've dearly missed for many, many years, he is not going to miss a thing. Verse 16 provides a few details. And church, I want you to use your sanctified imagination a little bit here in this. As I read this, get a picture in your mind's eyes of of what this event is going to be. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. When an authentic follower of Jesus dies, that, again, does not necessarily include anyone or everyone who's ever been baptized or been dedicated or been confirmed or been through First Communion or went forward at church camp. It doesn't necessarily include that group. It includes the people that have responded authentically to the gospel. The Bible's talking about authentic followers of Jesus who place their trust in Jesus. They still struggle with sin, but they are broken about it. They still have issues, but there's evidence of change and transformation in their life. When they die, their soul, who they are on the inside, goes immediately, immediately to be with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes it this way. He says, to be absent from this physical body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, a day that nobody but God the Father knows, even Jesus Christ does not know when this day is going to take place, Jesus is going to return to this earth for his church. On that day, God the Father is going to look at Jesus and say, Son, it is time. Go get your church. Paul tells us that the second coming of Jesus is going to be announced by the voice of an archangel. I've never heard the voice of an archangel. I'm looking forward to hearing that. It's going to involve a trumpet call of God. And it says, The dead in Christ will rise first. Many Bible scholars believe that this will be the day when people who are already in heaven will get their perfect, supernatural, eternal, heavenly, physical bodies. We're not going to be chubby angels sitting on a cloud up in heaven, okay? Some, uh, some cartoons tend to, to cause us to think that. It's going to be a, a mysterious event. There's some things that are written in the Bible about the second coming of Christ, but there's not a lot of detail given. It's going to be supernatural. If you're alive when the Lord returns, do not worry that your loved ones are missing out on all the excitement. Jesus says, I am bringing your loved ones with me. They will be there for it all. I'm bringing your spouse or your dad, or your mom, or your best friend, or your unborn child, they're all going to experience it. 
And church, here's the best part. Take a look at verse 17. If you don't have it in front of you, look on the screen. Here's the best part. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, together with them, those who have gone before, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the very best part. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Forever. We will be reunited with the people that we've loved that have gone to heaven already. What a sweet, sweet reunion that is going to be. However, as good as that is, the primary the primary feature is experiencing the literal presence of God. 1 Corinthians 13, 2 says, For now we see only a reflection in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Church, you and I can try, but until we get there, there is absolutely no way to imagine what being in the literal presence of God will be like. Here's just some of what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that heaven is a very real place where we will have a physical, eternal, and perfected body. They will be supernatural bodies. In heaven, there will be absolutely no more sickness or disease. There will be no physical, emotional, or relational pain whatsoever. No more grieving or sorrow. In heaven, there will be no more sin. Your sin won't be there. The sin of others won't be there. There will be rest from the effects and the consequences of sin. There will be no regrets in heaven. In heaven, we will be reunited with loved ones that we miss, experiencing joy literally beyond our wildest, wildest imaginations. And I know some of y'all, you have pretty wild imaginations. And I'll tell you, if you think about heaven and the potential glories and you spend countless hours just thinking about how wonderful heaven is in the way that you would conceive of it, you will still not come anywhere close to understanding the glories of heaven. In heaven, there will be no more disappointment. In heaven, there will be no more unmet expectations. There will be no rejection or loneliness or insecurities or boredom, and there will be absolutely no fear of any kind in heaven. Heaven will be far better than you or I could ever dream. In a thousand days after we get to heaven, it'll be just as glorious. Think about that. This earthly life, church, is not all there is. Paul wants us to be clear about that. If you have some specific questions about heaven, a number of years ago I ran into a book uh, that uh, an author by the name of Randy Alcorn wrote. If you're interested in this, write Randy Alcorn, A-L-C-O-R-N. And the book is just entitled Heaven. 
It's about the size of a textbook, but you don't have to read it from beginning to end. Just a wonderful, wonderful collection of what the Bible tells us about heaven. No wonder, no wonder why Paul tells us to encourage one another with these words. Church, as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as, as a teacher, there's a lot of different ways that you could take that, that text. Uh, we could have used it to kind of try to piece out a, a time frame for the second coming or the rapture of the church. Um, we could have used it to, uh, to think about the question, am I personally ready for heaven? And that's a pretty relevant question I hope all of you are, are thinking about. Is, as, as real as heaven is, hell is very real as well. Hell is the absence of the presence of heaven, a place of torment. Uh, the third thing we could have done is used it as a, a motivation for, because of the realities of this truth, uh, we need to be out sharing this with other people, uh, not beating people over the head with our Bible, but uh, sharing our faith, introducing people to the goodness of Jesus. We could have done all of those things, but this morning, what I hoped we did was looked at what I think is Paul's main focus here, helping people in Thessalonica, helping us not have to wonder where are our loved ones and our family members that uh, are in Christ that have already died and gone to heaven? Are they going to miss all this? And Paul's answer is no, they're not going to miss any of that. I know that we're, uh, we're kind of closing in on the time frame that, that we usually try to take, but I want to wrap this up by kind of uh, moving away from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just give a conclusion of just a couple of thoughts that are related to grieving in general. Um, I'm, uh, sometimes I feel like a young man, uh, but I'm 55 now. So I feel like I've also lived enough life, been to enough funerals, heard enough discussion about death and grieving that I've learned a few things. And there's, there's three things that I want to say very, very quickly. These could, could be uh, long, detailed conversations, and maybe in private someday they will be. But... To those of you that, um, that are still grieving the loss of someone, maybe that loss is very, very fresh. Maybe that loss is, is from years ago, but the grief still feels very, very hard and painful. I want you to know that it's certainly okay to grieve. It's, it's even a healthy thing to experience pain and still experience the pain of loss. I still grieve over the loss of my grandpa, and that was in 1977. Um, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to hurt. Um, you do not replace people. Uh, you lose a loved one. There's nobody that comes and replaces them. But uh, in that, that grief, again, I want to point you back to not only Paul's words here, but other places as well. Make sure that grief stands on a foundation of hope. The hope that there will be a reunion someday in heaven. I know, again, that doesn't make it all right, but for those that are still grieving, I want you to feel permission to grieve. Our culture does not understand grief very well. Um, our culture, maybe, top end will give you a year to grieve the loss of someone that you dearly, dearly love. And then the, the unwritten expectation is that you should kind of now be over it and moving on. And, and we all know in reality that just doesn't work. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, so... If you're grieving the loss of someone, uh, feel the freedom to, to process that, especially men. I think sometimes it's, it's hard for us to express or to talk about feelings. Um, and uh, certainly if there's ever a time that someone here on staff 
Uh, if you would ever want to talk to someone to be encouraged to process some things, we would love to do that or hook you up with someone who could. But it's okay to grieve. That's, that's thought number one. Thought number two is to those of us who are in positions of wanting to comfort somebody after a recent loss, whether that's the loss of, of someone's life or the loss of a job or, or something significant. But I would just say a word of caution to all of us that sometimes our physical presence is way more important than what we say. Uh, sometimes what we say in our attempt to actually help someone uh, actually hurts. Um, there have been numbers of times where people would say things like, God must have wanted another angel in heaven, so that's why they took your loved one. Um, you mean well when people say that, but that's not comforting at all. That's not helpful. Um, you know, at the loss of a child, you, you're young, you can try again. But those kinds of things, again, come from a heart of trying to encourage, but, but they aren't. If you don't know what to say, simply say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm, I'm praying for you. O- offer a hug. Just your physical presence makes a huge difference. But, but give some thought to what you say and... Um, and, and that's all I'll say about that. Last thing. I've talked a lot about how do you grieve people who are Christians. People who you uh, have a strong sense had an authentic uh, faith. It's, it's one thing to grieve a family member like my grandpa Huffmeyer who uh, I saw the evidence of Jesus in his life. He professed his love for the Lord. He lived his life in a way that I'm very, very confident, as confident as I can be that my grandpa Huffmeyer is with the Lord. Not because he deserved to be or not because of the good things that he did, but because of his dependence on what Jesus had already done for him. But how do you grieve someone like for me, my other grandpa? How do you grieve someone that you just don't know where they were at spiritually? Or maybe you really have concerns that they, they didn't know the Lord. How do you grieve that person? And uh, that's, a, that's a really, really difficult um, situation to be in. And I would, I would just want to say this. Number one, even if you have significant, significant doubts, you personally don't know. God is the judge. God is the one who will make that ultimate decision. And so I would say to you, even if you're grieving the loss of someone that you're pretty confident didn't have a relationship with Jesus, simply entrust them into the hands of God. Uh, That doesn't mean to pretend or to act like something that that isn't, but simply say, Lord, I'm I'm giving this person over to you. Uh, I trust your love. I trust your mercy. I trust your grace. And I trust that however that situation works itself out was a, is according to your good and, and perfect uh, plan. Re- release them to the Lord. You, you can't at that point pray them into heaven. There's no other deity or no candle you can light that's going to have any impact. Once a person physically dies, Scripture says then we're, we're ready to, to face a judgment, whether that be the receiving God's grace and mercy because of our faith or, or not. Um, but entrust them into the Lord's hands. And I, I would say, finally, as we conclude, the band can head on back up for a closing song. I have been thinking a lot this week about the reality, again, of the joy and the peace that comes from knowing that your loved ones and your family, the people that you know and love the most, that they have entrusted their lives to Jesus. At Crossroads, we do not ever 
preach or teach that you should try to beat somebody in submission to the gospel. You can't do that. But you can live your life in a way that that makes a tangible difference and an impact on others. And so whether indeed in the way that you live out your faith and the way that you speak about Jesus, if the Lord lays people on your heart and your mind uh, today, tomorrow, this week, um, begin to pray about, Lord, how would you have me do everything I can to make sure that they have heard the good news of the gospel? Let me pray, and then the band's going to help lead us in a final song. Father God, I thank you so much for the incredible, amazing, unbelievable sacrifice that that you have made to to come to this broken, sinful, fallen earth and to to live here a a perfect life uh, as a a perfect sacrifice willing to, to go to the cross and and endure the, the shame and the, the, the physical brutality, and more than that, to literally have the, the guilt of the sins of the world placed upon your shoulders. And yet you were, you were willing to do that because of, of your love for us, because of your desire uh, to have us be with you in heaven. And Lord, I would pray if there is any person in this room that has not yet, just like a child, simply said, Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know I'm not getting to heaven on anything I bring to the table. Uh, in the best way that I know how, I want to turn my life uh, over to you, Lord. Uh, I pray that your spirit would draw them, that you would encourage and motivate people to, uh, to make that, that decision. And, and Lord, I'm aware that there are many, many people in this room that this has been a difficult morning, even though we're talking about encouragement that comes from the gospel, their hearts are just still broken uh, and in pieces because of of the loss of of special, special, dearly, dearly loved people in their lives. And Holy Spirit, I know that uh, only you can comfort and bring healing, but I pray even today in a special way that as, as we leave this place, that the encouragement of your word, that there will one day be a reunion with you, And that we will never, ever, ever again be separated from those loved ones. May that bring profound and deep encouragement. And as a a way to respond to that, Lord, as we sing this last song, Lord, may we do it with all the, the gusto and sincerity that we can because you deserve all the praise that we can give. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, would you stand?